If you have enjoyed Baker Street 2033, why not consider supporting the second series? Go to ko-fi.com slash neilfitzgerald. That's ko-fi.com slash neilfitzgerald. Your support would be most welcome. A future Sherlock Holmes mystery. The Glass Cryptographer by Neil Fitzgerald. Episode 11 The New Irregulars. The next morning, we received an unexpected visit from Miss Roosh, who came bearing something that had almost literally turned up in the wash. I'm sure I speak for Holmes when saying we were surprised at her lack of morning clothes, a custom that seems to have passed the wayside in the modern era. She sported rough fabric trousers in a dark navy that lent her an almost casual and masculine look and put me in mind of other pioneers of the fairer sex we had known, or so our maker had led us to believe these many years, such as the incomparable Irene Adler. Once Miss Rouge was comfortably seated, and after having partaken of a cup of tea served by the inestimable Mrs Hudson, she began... It's silly, really, but I was going through the washing basket as if he were coming back home. It was full of Alan's things. I picked up his trousers, turned the pockets as usual, and, well, this fell out. She handed Holmes a small business card. He examined it thoroughly, fingering its thickness, holding it up to the light and eyeing it for marks, even sniffing it. Out came his magnifying glass for yet closer scrutiny. Seemingly satisfied, he then handed it to me. I looked it over. The front consisted of the single word, vrai, which even my meagre French could translate as true. Why the first two letters should be capitalised was a mystery. There was no more text to be found on the card. Other than a thickness which bespoke quality and a certain cost, I could learn nothing else from it. Well, my friend asked, the French word for true... Good quality, ten and six, I'd wager, for fifty such cards. It looks well-thumbed, suggesting it was used often. Watson, roared Holmes, have you never observed my methods? The data is there, plain as day, but you simply refuse to see it. He sighed, then the eyebrows arched and a wry smile broke out on those thin lips, just as we had seen Jeremy Brett do earlier. The resemblance was uncanny. Perhaps Holmes was right, and he had been an influence on his current form. This business card tells us much about Mrs. Roosh's habits, and is of the utmost importance for our investigation. I thank you, Miss Roosh, for bringing it to us. Without it, the path to progress in this case would have been much more prolonged. He stood hastily, seemingly in a bid to precipitate Miss Roosh's departure, which had the desired effect. She thanked us for our continued efforts on her behalf, bade us good day, and departed. Well, Holmes, what did you learn? He was in the process of putting on his overcoat, scarf and gloves. I must leave at once on an errand that is life and death, Watson. Life and death. I shall return as soon as I have news. What can I do to be of assistance? I inquired. Stay here and await further instructions. 
I may have need of you in your old service revolver yet. You still have it, I trust. I went to one of the drawers in the bureau and showed him the gun black metal object that had proved so useful over the years, or so it had been written. Splendid, Watson. Pray, be on your guard. I believe that we have only seen the surface of this case, and I fear its unfathomed depths. He departed, and I did not see him for several long days, in which I racked my brains in vain over the word Vray, and any possible bearing it might have on Alan Roosh's brutal murder. The time weighed heavily on my soul. I was surrounded by the counterfeit world of the museum that surely belonged to Conan Doyle's memory, not ours. And whilst my ostensible friend was content to seize its new role as a corporeal, flesh-and-blood Holmes, alive in the 21st century, I was still struggling to come to terms with the enormity of our recent metaphysical discovery. To find oneself to be a fiction is no easy thought to accommodate, and having time to dwell upon it, no cure. Perhaps Holmes's method of action was, after all, the correct one. As I sat and pondered this philosophical quandary, I could not resist taking advantage of the access to the Neosphere to learn more about Conan Doyle and the second life on film that we had subsequently had. It was remarkable how far the name of Sherlock Holmes and Watson had spread. We had indeed become a truly global phenomenon. There were the stories I had until yesterday always believed I had written. These two had spawned their own progeny. Entire case books that I had never heard of, existing intrigues that had been examined anew, and those cases that lived on only in titular fashion, like that of the giant rat of Sumatra, now had had flesh added to their bones by authors long removed in time from the original Doyle. Conan Doyle himself came under my scrutiny too. How could he not? He was, after all, our creator, our god. Few men ever get to meet their maker, and now we form part of this select coterie. How I wish it were otherwise. It seemed from my research that Holmes became something of a millstone around the novelist's neck. Desperate for recognition for his other literary efforts, he killed him off at the Reichenbach Falls. The Napoleon of crime Professor Moriarty was no more than a deus ex machina. Then, when the clamour of Holmes's literary audience became insupportable, Doyle performed his Lazarus act, miraculously raising him from the dead. His other published works did not merit such an attention. The Lost World is not without its charms. Professor Challenger pleasant enough company to pass several hours in. Naturally, I was surprised to learn of that business with the Cottingley fairies, especially for a medical man such as Doyle. But with his membership of the Ghost Club, the visits to clairvoyance, the seances attempting to commune with the dead, he seems to have taken leave of all rationality with his all-consuming interest in the supernatural. That Holmes would never have been taken in by such charlatanism is, of course, to confuse the creation with the creator, a mistake all too often made in literary circles. Doyle was not the skein of human imagination, but flawed historical flesh. Perhaps now Holmes too will appear similarly diminished in his new mortal frame. Time alone will tell. A day slipped by and still no news came of my friend's investigations. As the interregnum dragged on, I revisited the work of Brett and Hardwick and spent many an hour in front of the Walcombe screen. I was peculiarly troubled by their version of The Disappearance of Lady Frances Carfax, which was unrecognisable to that by Doyle's pen. More troubling still was that I found their version superior. Its relocation to the Lake District seems far more sensible, as does the con man as a missionary gone rogue. 
and in the principal personage, Lady Frances Carfax, there was the same female character of modernity that we find in Thomas Hardy's late novels. It was this that triggered the occasion for me to miss my wife for the very first time. The museum's curators had felt no inclination to bring her back, preferring to revel in the shared bachelorhood of the early acquaintance of Holmes and I. Funny that I should not have thought of her before. There was no doubt a simple explanation that escaped me for the moment, and I wondered how odd it was that she could live on in the minds of Doyle's readers, but not my own. I must have fallen asleep in front of a brilliant reimagining of the Hounds of the Baskervilles when I was pulled out of troubled dreams by a creature far stranger than any I had encountered in my nightmare, dropping a parcel in my lap. He was neither man nor beast, but a floating frame of some description. It maintained its elevated position through the rotation of a series of whirring blades. The sides of the machine were coloured orange and blue and sported the legend Amazon Prime Air, whilst the interior cavity of its frame-like skeleton was entirely filled with a box. It was as though the contraption had been designed for the very purpose of conveying such packages to and fro. An extraordinary thought. It hovered in situ above me, as though waiting for a response. I looked at the time. It was not yet three o'clock. I opened the lid of the box, which was made of a strange material that resembled rubber, but was more rigid. Inside was a message scribbled in the recognisable hand of my companion. Watson, meet one of our new irregulars. Follow, and it will lead you to my location. Bring your service revolver. Do not delay. S.H. The strange-looking machine burred and chirped at me, but I could make neither head nor tail of what it was attempting to communicate, until it dawned on my sleep-befuddled brain that it was waiting for me to rouse myself. I quickly readied myself, retrieving my pistol from the drawer in the bureau and checking the chamber for the number of rounds. Six. They would have to suffice. The machine seemed to sense my revolver and hovered higher above me, almost as if it were backing away from my gun. What a preposterous idea. Sentient machines. Not even Wells had gone that far in his futuristic visions. The hovering delivery machine led our circumambulation through the streets of a London I hardly recognised in daytime, let alone at night. We were on foot and our way twisted away from the back streets and cobbles of my false memories into an austere landscape of towering glass and steel, interspersed with lifeless stone plazas festooned with giant sculptures of inconceivable form. Our passage became more regulated the further on we went. Automaton guards patrolled these open spaces, and my airborne guide steered us elegantly around their observation decks and watch details. Cameras too were attached to the walls and had to be carefully avoided. Again, my guide handled this with peculiar aplomb, as if he had plentiful experience of such furtive behaviour. After half an hour, we entered one of the vast architectural monoliths that confound the senses with their sublime stature. Bizarrely, our clandestine behaviour was suddenly abandoned by my guide. It led me brazenly across a vast atrium of fawn-like marble, its very air turned a golden hue from the numerous orbs of electric light suspended above us. Neither of us was challenged by the guards on the front desk as we made our way towards the lifts. I could only guess that they were long habituated to seeing these self-propelling delivery machines come and go, but this did not answer why I went unchallenged. Once stationed by the elevators, I caught sight of an enormous list of businesses I took to have offices in the building. I scanned through it absent-mindedly as we waited for the lift to arrive, when suddenly my eyes are lit on a name on the 111th floor. 
Vray. Holmes was waiting for us outside the doors upon our arrival. With him was a man who looked familiar, but I could not place him for the moment. Holmes, I came as soon as I could. How the devil are you? Did you bring your old service revolver, Watson? Indeed I did, but who is this irregular who has led me here? And what have you discovered that required such ungodly haste? I said, pointing to my watch. Drones, Watson. I have much to tell and precious little time in which to tell it, primarily because we have wasted so much time, and here his frustration vented itself in a clenched fist punching his hand. But this case, this case is truly something. His smile, the Brett smile, was back and complimented with a wry chuckle. One for your new case book, I shouldn't doubt. Let us retire to a quiet room along the corridor, and I shall quickly regale all. But your friend, Holmes, we have not been introduced. Oh, I am quite forgetting myself. I had assumed you were already acquainted, which in a manner of speaking, you already are. Watson, this is Alan Roosh. Sherlock Holmes will return in Episode 12 In Search of a Latter-day Opium Den If you have enjoyed this podcast, you might like to try others by the same writer and producer, such as Dear Old Blood, Notes on a Wittgenstein Noir, and Modern Gothic. The writer now has a cracking idea for a second series of Baker Street 2033. So, you could also consider supporting the writer at buymeacoffee.com slash Neil Fitzgerald. <laughs>